You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to a very special episode dealing with the COVID-19 virus. This is actually, we're calling this COVID-3. This is reopening after covid so you are listening to the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and my co-host Bob can't join us tonight because they actually started curbside service tonight at the MS Clark Memorial Library, so he's there overseeing that. So today we're joining you remotely from our COVID home studios here on Long Island, and the Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts, and please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Library Pros, and consider leaving a review and telling a friend about us. So we're going to have a panel of guests today that are coming to us via Zoom. We are going to have Carol Ann Tack, the head of Reader's Advisory at the Merrick Library in Merrick, New York, James Hutter, technology librarian, um and head of computer services at the Port Washington Public Library in Port Washington, New York. Scott Jarmazek, the executive director of the Albany Public Library, who has a great plan uh, for reopenings. Uh, Jessica Chowton, who is the community engagement specialist at the Syosset Public Library in Syosset, New York. Mike Bruno, the head of reference services at the Brentwood Public Library in Brentwood, New York. Nick Tanzi, assistant director at the South Huntington Public Library in Huntington, New York. Uh, Rob Thompson, Australia Library and Information Association State Manager for New South Wales, Australia. Sally Stiglitz, for the Communications and Marketing Coordinator from the Long Island Library Resources Council in Bellport, New York. And Sally Turbot, Makerspace Coordinator for the University Library, University of Newcastle and Central Coast Campus, New South Wales, Australia. We're also very lucky to have Justin Henke, who is the team leader of libraries and community centers in the Wellington City Library in Wellington, New Zealand. So this is going to be a different kind of episode than we usually do. There won't be a top 10 list, but we're going to have an engaging discussion about what it takes to open a library post-COVID. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, so this is a different kind of format than we're usually accustomed to for the, por- for the podcast. And if you haven't listened to our COVID-1 and COVID-2 episodes, you should take a listen for some background because we first talk about, with the panel, uh, the shock of closing, and then we discuss... You know, what we were doing in the crisis. So as we move forward, we have been fortunate enough to add some people to the panel uh, who can lend some expertise to the subject of reopening. So just going around the horn again, we have Sally Siglitz. We have Nick Tanzi, Carol Ann Tack, James Hutter, Justin Henke. Henke, right? Did I get it right? Yes. Okay, Henke. Yeah, and then Scott. Oh, God, Scott, help me. Oh, and he's muted. <laughs> Of course. Of course. <laughs> Jar's in back, right? Jar's in back. Jar's in the back. Yes. Jar's in the back. And of course, Rob Thompson and Sally Turbot and Mike Buono and Jessica Chowton. So we already I did your intros and titles before, so don't worry about that. We covered that. So before we actually talk about the nuts and bolts of actually moving back into our physical spaces, I think it's important to talk about the big role uh, that our governments have in all of this. So now, for most of us here in New York State, We've been riveted to the Andrew Cuomo show, which is basically his daily press briefings and following the constructs of the New York State phases of reopening. Now, Sally 
and Rob can speak about what's you know what's going on with New South Wales, and Justin can speak about what's going on in in Wellington and what the federal government's actions have been in New Zealand. So why don't we start with Justin, since he's the most unique of all of us right now? Chris, are you recording? Yes, I am recording. (laughs) Sorry, I was expecting a record on the Zoom. Sorry. Oh no, no, I'm recording on my thing. Okay. Just edit that bit out. Over to you, Justin. <laughs> Hi there. From New Zealand. Kia ora. Yeah. Um, oh, I forget where we were at. What would you like me to say? Just talking about the government and the government's <laughs> role and, and whether or not we can open. We couldn't just say, okay, you know what? The numbers look good. We're going to open now. So tell us what happened over in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, uh, so in New Zealand, you know, we kind of saw what was going on in the rest of the world. and We were kind of... It, for about like two, three days, we were like, okay, is this actually going to happen here? Because we're so remote and kind of isolated. Um, but then I believe it was on March 21st. It was just all of a sudden it was like, this is happening. Let's shut it down. Let's take care of business before, you know, uh, the S hits the fan. And um <laughs> It it was really like two days after March 21st that everything really shut down. The government announced this, the the levels of um, uh, the pandemic levels. We have levels zero through four. And they said, okay, starting on this date, two days from March 21st, we are in level four, which means complete lockdown. You can come out of your house to walk around. Businesses have to close. Libraries have to close. Everything pretty much has to close. And... um, it was, it was really amazing just to see the government go, this is what's happening. Everybody follow, please trust us. And then everybody did. And uh, everybody was super cool about it. They kind of said, okay, this is scary, but we're going to do it. And so we were in lockdown level four for about a month. I think it was a month exactly. And then slowly but surely as our cases diminished, the government kind of worked us through how level three, level two, and now we're in level one looked. And what that meant at each level, how many people can be in a building, how we have to check in at every building to, um, we have a government app over here. It kind of traces uh, where you've been, where your movements are. And just each step of the way, it was was pretty amazing how clear and um, flexible at the same time they were with the, um, the stuff that they allowed us to do. You know, they would say, okay, you can have, you know, 50 people in a, in a building at once. And then after two days, they were like, yeah, 50, how about we up it to 75? And uh, everybody kind of just went along with that. So it's it's been a lot of change over um, a short period of time. But um, the government has been nothing but clear and uh, direct. And everybody's been pretty cool with following along. And it seems like the New Zealand approach uh, was the most direct approach, almost, uh, compared to what was happening here in the States. Yeah. Um, yeah. The government just kind of said, this is what it's going to be. And I, I mean, I've only been over here for eight months, but it seems like the Kiwis over here, they, they have this trust level in their government where they, the government said something, they're able to go, oh, okay, this is a pain or we don't like this, but we trust you and we're going to go with this. Um, even even as you get the different sides of the political spectrum, there's like this kind of middle ground still here where they say, okay, we have to do this. Uh, we understand that this is uncomfortable, 
we're going to go for it. So, I, I mean, I think the directness of the government here, but then the people, uh, their willingness to trust and kind of become, you know, a community of five million really made the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny when you talk about population size. So, you know, we're talking like New York Metro is probably the entire nation of uh, New Zealand, right? Yep. About yeah. That. Yeah. And I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of parts of New Zealand, too, that are just, you know, Lord of the Ringsy. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's nobody there. So when you're thinking about the five million, they're in very they're clustery, I guess. You know, we have a lot of people in Auckland, New Zealand, which is the tip of our North Island. We have a lot of people in the where I'm at, Wellington, which is the south of the North Island. And then the South Island is kind of uh, I don't know the exact population statistics. But that's a little more rural. But, uh, yeah, it, I think about uh, my home state of Pennsylvania, and I think that's like 20 million. So, uh, yeah, we're a quarter of that over here. Really is kind of, it, it's an interesting approach. So transitioning over now to uh, Australia, can uh, Rob and Sally tell us about what the, what the levels were like with your government there? Rob, you're muted. <laughs> nope, still nothing. I'll talk while Rob figures his audio out. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we had uh, different approaches depending on what state you were living in. So Rob and I are both in New South Wales, so there were a certain set of rules for um, the state and for, for New South Wales, and then it was sort of um, slightly different library-wise um, depending on um, whether you were sort of rural or regional or in a metropolitan area. So the Sydney libraries, a lot of them, a lot of the university libraries are still closed uh, or mm-hmm. doing a very, very, very slow, uh, minimal reopen. Um, and public libraries have come back online and are doing a mixture of, you know, sort of click and mostly click and collect at the moment. Um, so, you know, you order your, you know, request your books online and go into the library and they have a limited space opened up and you can go and pick them up. Um, but the library that I work at we were pretty much open the entire um, time we had a shutdown at the university for two weeks over Easter to get as many people off campus as possible and then we were working probably from the middle of March on a um, 20% of staff on site at any one time um, across all our campuses Uh, and we had our our libraries had our 24-hour spaces were still open but they were um, unsupervised like security were coming in but there weren't any library staff in over that period of time and we've sort of now got some reduced hours but where um, all our classes are online for the rest of this for, the, for semester one for semester two starting in July everything's back face to face so but with reduced numbers on in lecture theatres and stuff like that so for our makerspace we we've been open pretty much the whole time and just slowly working through um, different cleaning processes and and we had so I don't know I think with the same same in the states we had sort of lots of rapid changes to what what was expected and and what contact you could have slightly different to the new i think i would have been happier with the new zealand approach where it was very clear this is what we're doing this is what you can do within this level four this is what you can do we sort of had a lot of mixed messages we've got borders closed with queensland but they're open with victoria we sort of got a mishmash of of stuff so that 
you know, it was hard to get uh, concrete um, evidence of this is what is this is what this library service or this is what this makerspace is doing here. So this is what we need to do here because it's all so it's such a mixed bag of of what people are doing. So that definitely made it trickier for us. Yeah, and we didn't have. Um uh, Jacinda Arden sitting down with her pajamas on, going, "Good night, everybody." Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, just we did had lots have of arguments, daily <laughs> briefing, but but not quite yeah. the, the level of. Now here's the story before you go to bed, kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely been a good, I think um, all of this COVID stuff will be excellent case studies for communications um, academics in the, in the future, looking at well, like, how did we not, how did, what did we do wrong and, and, and what could have been done differently in terms of, you know, language used and I think even, you know, um, libraries figuring out how to describe what their online services are and how, you know, it's definitely pushed everyone to... Um, put as much weight and value in online services as the face-to-face stuff, which I think lots of us have never really had the opportunity to do purely because there hasn't been time to actually balance both of those services, you know, 50-50 properly. Yeah, and, and having the time to to go, okay, th- this was always something that we were going to get around to at, at some time. Now's the time we've got around to it and we're able to demonstrate that the library can pivot and be very flexible and still uh, reach its target audience and uh, community uh, in a different way has been mm. remarkable, not just for, on the library side, but also for the councils um, and local government to show them that libraries can adapt really, really quickly and really, really well. So how did it affect the, the public libraries as much as it affect the universities? Okay, so public libraries basically all closed down, um, although some people chose to work in uh, in their library but not open to the public. Um, they did a lot of, you know, making you know, library at home via the websites, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, a lot of people worked at their own libraries, but a lot of people also managed to work from home um, and they were able to get into and you know, take their computers home and do all that kind of stuff. So um, most libraries are now reopening, but they're opening um, to a stage of basically you go in for 30 minutes, pick up your stuff, uh, return your books, pick up new books and get out again. So it's very transactional at the moment, um, but they're, they're working through that process. To, um, so next week they're going to start letting people come in and use the computers and that sort of thing, and that should start to, um, libraries start to fill up, if you like, um, with people there most of the day or for a period of time in the day. Rob, are you using keyboard covers? Are you cleaning them? Uh, no, everybody gets a, a, a wipe. Now, there's a wipe station and you can wipe your own, the keyboard down, wipe the mouse. That's up to you um, because you just can't run around the building wiping everything down. You just run out of people to run around the building. So every person who comes in who will use the uh, the keyboard, wipe it down, they can wipe the mouse down, they can wipe the mat down, and then they can go for it. But that's, you know, that's not going to start happening until uh, after next week. Rob, your um, libraries sound like where we were at two weeks ago, so that's very interesting to kind of have this timeline of, like, uh, because two weeks ago, we were like that, too. It was, like, very transactional. It was you come in, you get your stuff, and you leave. It didn't even feel like a library. It felt like um, 
it felt like a supermarket or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, um, yeah, it gets better because then the people come back, as we're yeah. seeing now. Yeah, and, and that's that. right. We're, we're about three weeks behind you. Um, so whatever happens in New Zealand, we'll do that three weeks down the track. <laughs> <laughs> So so here in New York, um, I am not particularly super versed in what the phases are. I know that it's regional based upon where you are in the state. So um, I'm going to kind of rely on Scott and James and Nick to talk a little bit more about the about what the phases are. And uh, the region that we're here, we're on Long Island and Scott is up in the capital region, which is where Albany is. So that's like eastern border with Massachusetts and Vermont. And northern Connecticut, uh, going across to like the Mohawk Valley and a little further west. So uh, I guess we'll start with Scott. Scott, tell us about what the phases meant here in New York. So right now it looks like Wednesday we're going to reach phase three, which, you know, um, Albany is a food town. So really whenever they talk about the phases, it's in what phase, how you can eat at a restaurant. So phase, (laughs) phase one was curbside pickup, which I mean, we were doing curbside pickup this entire time. Um, Phase two was kind of outside dining, which has been an interesting experience walking the dog um, and avoiding all these tables outside the bar. Uh, Basically, the sidewalks have been taken over. um, And now in this next phase of dining will be allowed. I think it's 25% allowed in the restaurants and 20. And it really Albany is a drinking town, not so much as a foodie foodie town. So people will actually be able to drink in the bar instead of just outside. Um, So that's, you know, that's where we are with the phases because we're a district library. We don't necessarily have to follow those guidelines from the state. Uh, We also, after I spoke on the podcast last time, after we shared our plan with the control room, which the regions in New York all have control rooms. My mayor called me like the next morning while I'm like washing dishes and to tell me that she has deemed us an essential service and we could open Monday if we wanted to, which I said, thank you, but no, thank you. Um, so we're reaching phase three. Um, and for us, that means we're close to doing curbside delivery. Some of the libraries around us that are in the same library system as us, they've started doing curbside today. We're taking a little bit more time just because we're a multi-branch library and we really wanted to kind of get our staff used to being back in the building. Uh, you know, Monday was, I've been doing, uh, I've been going to the office once a week since this all started. Um, This is the first time I've been in the office multiple days with other people in the building, which has been definitely a strange experience. So we're trying to ease everybody in. So, I mean, I think we're far away from having people in the building. I think we're, I I don't think it looks that different than, you know, our friends in the other hemisphere. Um, You know, we'll start with transactional, the traditional transactional model, um, first with people curbside, then people maybe making appointments and coming in. And then maybe after appointments, it's come in, but it's, you're really just there to take books out and maybe grab a laptop and spend an hour on the laptop. We haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, so, you know, I, I, New York State hasn't had a tremendous amount of guidance for specifically public libraries. It's been really frustrating. <laughs> Um, I mean, we were basically forgotten and we weren't hearing anything. We're under state ed. We weren't hearing anything from state ed. Actually, uh, Nylon, which is the big New York library listserv, uh, three days ago sent out an email going, hey, preparing schools to reopen, you know, on the library listserv. And I really bit my tongue. My staff told me they were really proud of me because anybody who knows me, I'm not afraid to say things. I don't know how I've made it as far as I have. 
Um, and I really, I had a really kind of nasty response that I put in my drafts and did not send out. So, um, you know, it's, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of guidance. Um, there was actually a great webinar as part of today that had better guidance. The systems are doing a much better job now of figuring out how to do these plans. But um, for some libraries, it's if you're an association library, you might not be until phase four. If you're a district library, you could have been open the entire time. And if you're a municipal library and, and your staff haven't been laid off by your town supervisor, no one's really quite sure when to open. So it's been a really frustrating experience in New York, but I have to give um, the, the, a, a bunch of library directors and system directors credit throughout the state. They're coming up with plans and we're just, we're doing what libraries always do, which is kind of saying eh, to everybody and forging ahead on our own. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know that uh, here in Suffolk County, Suffolk Cooperative Library System um, put out a, uh, a, a kind of a stepped phased um, plan for opening. So phase one was was getting staff in the building. Uh, phase two, I think, was curbside. Phase three is, uh, I'm kind of lost. Nick, you want to help me out with that a little bit? Uh, limited service, limited contact, um, and really then programs being the last thing that ever really comes back, never mind size and scope of a program. Um, and, you know, I think as, as Scott was saying, New York's been a little tough. I mean, United States, it's a federal system, so it's already interesting. And then, you know, New York is a bunch of different regions that really are different population densities, have a different infection rate. And kind of for us, it is a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, we know that the schools were always the, the thing that was kind of on the uh, the government's mind. And they, they tended to forget things with, with the libraries, like that we have like public votes and stuff. <laughs> and that, you know, we, we need to be able to conform with public meeting laws and also hold elections, but also have a, you know, a quarantine. And a lot of this stuff was like, oh, yeah. And it was figured out afterwards and more or less really ran on the school district calendar. You know, understandably, they're a bigger portion of funding, um, but it, it definitely, uh, you know, caused headaches for us all. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of the guidance really has been, you know, by and large, New York kind of operates in two week increments. And that's kind of how we seem to plan. And that's the most we could promise. So, you know, really, as a communication strategy for us, it was just don't say anything that's untrue, because it's really difficult to unring the bell after you've sent an email, after you've done a Facebook post. And so we've committed to steps, you know, again, that are incremental, but that also you know, um, where we hope to on this date. And even then, we've had a few situations where, in some cases, New York has sped up the process. We were caught a little flat-footed. But organizationally, in order to do something orderly and to kind of have safety of staff and public, we still said, no, we committed to opening on this date, and we're going to do it on this date. So the things that we need are, you know, kind of together. Because, um, you know, as was mentioned with like the, the uh, capital area opening up a bit in western New York, those were things where, you know, best laid plants of mice and men, we'd be talking, we'd be in a meeting and somebody would have run in and be like, did you hear what Cuomo said? <laughs> <laughs> and it does have a tendency to blow up your plans. Um, so, yeah, you know, for us, it's a communication strategy. And on Monday, we just started curbside. Um, so it's, and actually it's not really curbside, it's grab and go. Um, we will run materials out to somebody that has a mobility issue and that, you know, that can be something that's a, you know, physical or it could just be, you know, kids having kids is a mobility issue. <laughs> 
roll around your materials out. Otherwise, you're not actually entering the lobby, but you're kind of coming up kind of like those restaurants where you can't actually enter and just picking up your materials. And by and large, people have been pretty happy. And I, I think we can all agree the argument, you know, some folks want us to be open. They want to get in. I'm happy to have an argument with a patron who's pissed that they can't get into their library. I prefer those arguments over why do we have libraries? Why do we need libraries? Um, so th that's a good sign when people are mad that they can't utilize the library to the, you know, to the maximum. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, this is when, you know, farther out from now, this is definitely, I think, what went on in New York State with unemployment and, the, you know, the struggle there. I think this is actually going to give us a really good narrative about why libraries are important. Uh, the digital divide has never been so evident as now. I mean, we've been, our kids were out of school in March and I, my wife and I struggled. Um, I can't imagine what other people's households were like. So I think, you know, we're, we're, once we get through this and we safely get through this and carefully get through this, I think there's going to be a pretty clear narrative for libraries to show how important we are and maybe uh, give us a little bit of power when we sit at the table and not just take on everything our municipalities don't want to fund or deal with anymore and say, you know, th this is how important we've become. So we better have a stronger voice at the table. And, and to Scott's point, too, I'm sorry, it's just it's a one-two punch, too, where, you know, the, we all of a sudden they discovered libraries when they needed to get the word out for census. <laughs> yes. And now you have a pandemic. And again, you know, you, you're coming to the library and realizing that there's a there's a real need there. And it I think can be an amnesia when it comes to advocacy and budget time. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. And I think when it comes to libraries, I think people think of the library as a building and they don't realize it's an organization with all these libraries are people and i think now because that's my you know people are like why are you guys closing and it's like well i have a staff i need to keep safe so i think it definitely will change the narrative for libraries for people to realize it's not just about unlocking a door and letting people in and grab books it's very much about an organization full of well-meaning people that you know are there to serve the community and just one other point on what nick said about i mean we we I can't believe we ran an election. Um, all of our, right now, uh, we have two seats up in our board of trustees. Typically, uh, a vote, we do it with the school district budget. Typically, you get about 3,000 voters. There are 10,000 ballots to be counted today. So, again, you know, it's all of a sudden, I was getting texts from people I haven't heard from forever asking about, you know, people who they should vote for. And I sent them you know, away from me and to, to where there was a debate or a discussion with all the candidates. But it, it, it'll be, I think it'll definitely help tell the story of libraries once we get through this safely. And that was our joy too, you know, where they, they like I said, they kind of remembered like, oh yeah, they have to have a budget vote. And we kind of skunked that a little bit. I mean, we, we functionally had to send out absentee ballots to 20,000 household or to 20,000 people for an uncontested trustee election. We didn't even have a budget vote. Um, and you know, that, that's not exactly, uh, <laughs> ideal, I would say, and, and doesn't really serve the public interest, you know, and, and that's kind of the spot we were put in because of these, these decisions being made on the fly. And I will say that having board meetings now done through Google meets or zoom, we have 30 people watching the board meeting. And then we have, you know, 30 more people watching the YouTube uh, video afterwards. So now people are way more engaged. I mean, we had we had originally, I think, nine candidates for two seats. Um, we've never had so much engagement over our governance. So I think that's a positive as well.
Yeah. Do you think that people are going to go back to not doing the Zoom, not doing YouTube? I think it's a change. You know, we've always put our board meetings on YouTube, so this has been a positive. I don't ever, I if I if I can wave a magic wand and never have an in-person board meeting again and just do it through Google Meetings or Zoom, yeah. I would do it because it makes I the think, most amount of sense and yeah. it's all on record. It's democracy. It's perfect. We're, we're all giving thumbs up because we actually think that's great. Well, one thing that's interesting about the whole lockdown was there were services that we had to scramble to provide saying, okay, we're more than just a building. So at our place, we introduced a live reference chat. And Which that's, place is that again, Chris? Uh, it's the Sachem Public Library. For those of you drinking at home for the Sachem drinking game. Uh, so Woo! Did, I, did I miss it? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. So, Shout out. So the idea is that, you know, Reference chat is now not going away. It's a service we provided when the building wasn't there. It was used. It was another form of reaching and, and performing that reference um, service to the patron. So that's not going away. We're going to continue to do that. And there are so many other things that we have implemented that are now not going away, that they're going to stay because we found them to be effective, not to mention that there may be a second wave. Let's hope not, hope and pray that that's not going to happen. But if there is a second wave, it's not something we have to go into the garage and, and change the oil and, and pull the string and get it up and running again. So, But again, it's a great service. It's something that was explored and tried, I want to say, about 10 years ago in Suffolk County with, um, was it Live Librarian or something like that? But that was a countywide initiative where... You know, we, it's, very, it's very common in academics. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so we that kinda, was just, I always wondered why the publics weren't doing it. Well, here we are now doing it. So it, it really just makes sense. Another, so, um, takes you a don't village. mind me interjecting about just like text in general um, or chat. Does anybody communicate with patrons on social media pages? I know uh, we managed through Hootsuite um, about four Facebook pages. And as chats were coming, you know, there were people who were monitoring the chat, but um especially in the beginning, we had a lot of people going through that and we still do. Mm -hmm. it, makes a lot, we, it makes sense. And we have somebody who monitors social media so they can address those issues. Um, and if they can't address them right there and answer it right there as a reference question, they'll refer them to chat or refer them to a particular person in the building with their email address. And, you know, we would go from there. I mean, it, it pretty much serves the same function as when you use the, the contact at your library org. Um, you know, it, with getting in touch with the library, I think that the chat part of it makes it more personal, makes it more engaging and gives that immediate gratification. And if you can't answer the question, you can refer it to the librarian or the professional in your organization that can answer the question. Sure. But it, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, just, you know, when we were um, getting ready to do uh, kind of the grab and go service, the, the curbside equivalent. You know, we, we talked about how to take those requests and, you know, the, there's a high tech solutions. But really what we decided on was just take the request in people's chosen format. So if somebody wants to call us, call them back. If somebody wants to email us, email them back. Some folks prefer text. Um, and really, it's just it, it was the way to go. You know, it, it's simple. And a lot of times people are looking for different things. You know, I would probably sooner die than have to actually make a phone call for somebody. So I'm a texter. So if somebody texts me back, I'm super happy. And for some folks who want that socialization, they want to talk to another human being. So so take it that way. Um, 
So I'm just a big fan of kind of engaging people on their chosen format in their chosen format. It makes a lot of sense because you're dealing with comfort level as well. And digital divide. Right, exactly. So if somebody can... can, uh, Older patrons. Yes, exactly. So if they need to make the phone call, they make the phone call. Um, Not everybody's like tech-savvy parents with their Apple Watches. (laughs) Go ahead, Mike. Uh, I think that the reason why the the Suffolk chat way like, 10 years ago didn't work was the, the ease of using that application was pretty terrible. Um, and it, there was a point where the, suddenly chat became easier to use, but we had already decided it didn't work. Um, so it was like we kind of were ahead of, like sometimes librarians adopt things very quickly, but then when we get frustrated when other people don't, and then we stop just as it actually starts picking up. I think that was the case with with, with, with uh, the, the the website chat. So I remember having these conversations in like 2014 when I was working in uh, on um, Patchogs website, and the answer I got every time I brought it up is like, "Well, no one uses it." I'm like, "Well, no one used it four years ago, but that was four years ago." You know, like the world's changed in four years. Things move fast now, but that was it, I was never able to get past that point of, you know, it doesn't work. Well, we also uh, weren't the same kind of texting community that we are now as well. True. Sorry, true. There was that, and there was um, just the, I think, like you were saying, the ease of the interface. And I think part of the issue also was it was library to library. So it wasn't like if you were sitting in in a particular library, you're servicing your patrons. You were servicing whoever came to that service. So it's a little more localized if it's, and some people may say that it's more fragmented because it's an individual library thing. But if you think in terms of library service, you're serving primarily the patrons in your district. And then from there, it branches out to helping people outside the district. So um, I think that it was a great try for an initiative that had high lofty, um, you know, had very lofty goals. But I think it was just too spread too thin amongst the libraries in Suffolk County. Yeah. And it's not really a criticism of the, um, uh, of it's more of an industry trend that I, I think I'm a problem with than, the specific rollout here. I just see it a lot where we we engage with something very quickly, very early, and then if it doesn't work, we drop it. And then we have a hard time going back to it after the fact. Mm-hmm. So one thing that, that I think caught us all flat-footed, and, and Scott and Nick talked about it a little bit, was that we were waiting for that phase one. And then we found out, oh, libraries are exempt from the phases. You can start opening. So I think that started like a mad dash to try to figure out what was going to happen. And we really did rely on our systems, uh, at least here in Suffolk and Nassau, to say, okay, so what happens? And then we came up with these different phases uh, in our library systems, at least down here, uh, because we didn't have to necessarily follow what the phases were established for private enterprise and for whoever wasn't you know, exempt from those phases. So we, we talked about those different phases as phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. Um, so once we got to the point where we said, okay, curbside, this is a word that, you know, four months ago wasn't even part of the library vernacular. We thought more about Applebee's or, you know, California Pizza Kitchen or something or some kind of food service when you think about curbside. And then all of a sudden now curbside is part of what we do and we have to figure out how this works. So what does it mean and what does it look like at each of your buildings? Now, Nick, you kind of talked about uh, your service. Uh, Bob, who isn't here, told me to tell everybody that over at Emma Clark, they're getting a huge turnout 
for uh, curbside because uh, their patrons are very engaged over at Emma Clark. Um, so is and and the interesting thing and kind of James, we talked about this in our our joint tech meeting earlier in the week that there's a lot of home brew going on out there. Um, and Justin, you can even talk about how you did curbside over there. Um, you know, so let's kind of talk about how we implemented our curbside. Now I know it's still rolling out and it's still new. Um, and there are apps out there. Other people are using Google Sheets or Excel, and some people are just saying, you know, well, people didn't make a reservation to pick up their books before, so let them just come and get it, and we'll bring it out to them. So, um, you know, let's let's go around the horn and, and see what uh, what you guys are doing. I guess start with Nick since he already kind of talked about it a little bit. Sure. So, you know, kind of like everybody, we're like, man, this is a high tech solution. Is this a low tech solution? And really what we wanted to do was make it simple um, and make it fast. Right. Those are the things we kind of owe people with speed of service because we don't want them lingering and a process that was easy to understand for staff and patrons. So with that in mind, and the other thing is, we don't know the duration of this. Is this something we're going to be talking about that we're doing six months later or not? So I'm a big fan of starting simple. And then the longer this goes on, adding complexity to it, um, but not needlessly. So what we're doing is we're having people place holds on materials that are specifically our libraries, right, until interlibrary alone turns back on. Um, we're running a list and we're pulling that stuff. So that's the first way people can get stuff. And then we reach out to them, right? The second way is they can call or email. And at that point, we take a quick order. We're basically, we're treating it like a restaurant. We write the order down super quick. It starts a work order because oftentimes it's not as straightforward as somebody requesting specific materials. It can turn into a reader's advisory situation. And so that goes on, and then the appropriate person gets that information, reaches out to the patron, and then pre-checks the stuff out. So basically, they're either requesting it online or by phone. We're arranging pickup, and it's pre-checked out, and then they're just coming up when they're ready. Because really, even if they're coming up cold, they're just saying, hey, it's Jimmy C., and we go right there and pull that item. So it's already checked out they're not there more than 30 seconds and that's worked out pretty well for us. I have no doubt we'll make adjustments. Um, but this is seemed to be the, the simplest way where we're not introducing a new system and training people. And, and, you know, it's a new service. You don't need to learn a new system on top of that. You know what I'm loving um, is that we're using a word like curbside and not something that we have to translate for patrons, you know, um, front door side <laughs> delivery of materials and collections. Right. And, and, and to your point, Sally, too, that was where it, it saved us a lot of training. We're like, hey, man, anybody who's ordered out knows how this works. You know, it's not a whole communication strategy. It's just like, you know, just treat it like burgers, man, and you're fine. <laughs> we're calling, I mean, yeah, we're, we're they don't even that. know what reference means. They don't right. know what the word reference. Thank God we have a word that just fits in to to current society for a change. Caroline, yeah. are you saying something? Yeah, we're, we're not cataloging it. We're not processing it. We're not, um, um, you know, acquisitioning it. We're, we're, we're doing it in a, in a word that everybody understands. Plain language. 
plain language. Yeah. We're um, plain we're language. calling ours library takeout, but you know the the heart is the same. Everybody everybody knows how to place a takeout order. If for whatever reason you don't, the last three months have made you very proficient in it. But you know <laughs> it's it's the same it's the same type of thing. You give us what you want. We put everything together. We bag it up, and when you're ready to go. We have it ready for you um, in a bag and we place it uh, on a table outside the door. And, you know, it's been very nice. Yeah. And I just I want to add the, the one missing piece on all this is the quarantine of materials. So when something is coming back, it's not being returned for seven days. Um, again, when we talk about simplicity, we were talking about doing 72 hours, but we decided having seven tables, it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right through the days of the week is much more foolproof. You just have to grab the Monday books on Monday and they're good to go again. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, you know, we, we really haven't touched on too much. You know, it's that whole quarantining of, returns now for us we're doing it in book drop only we're not letting patrons walk in the building or put it on a, a table or something so it's sitting in a bin we pull the bins and we put them in one particular room and we let them sit there for um you know for 72 hours before we go in the morning and now everybody knows the deal everybody walks up to circulation grabs it grabs the books and sorts them out and then there's another group that actually does the sorting of you know fiction non-fiction new blah 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 and then we all jump in together and three of us to a cart, we shelve it and we get it done in, you know, whatever time it takes for that particular day's bins. You know, some day you have one bin, other days you have four. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of, you know, being safe and having the proper PPE when you're doing it as well, just in case. It was interesting here. Um, we, we were told at the beginning that we were going to do three days quarantine of all materials that came back. And we prepared this all this work about how we were going to manage that. And then about two days before I think we reopened to the public, um, one of the organizations in Australia was like, um, we've talked to the Ministry of Health over there, and they said, we don't have quarantine books. So the Kiwis were like, oh, yeah, the, the Aussies over there are saying, no quarantine books. So how about we do that? And then we didn't do it. So... Um, yeah, we, we never quarantined and we haven't had any issues. So that's, that's interesting. And the studies are kind of all over the place with regard to how long the uh, virus can stick to paper materials or the mylar covers or cardboard you know, covers or even paperbacks. So the, I don't think there's any we'll know in probably five years by the time the virus isn't as virulent and isn't as much of a threat, God willing, Um at that point and then it'll be academic but i mean as far as i think it, it not even just from a liability standpoint but just as from a public health standpoint you don't want your people to get sick because once you get one person confirmed in your building that starts another whole can of worms that um i don't even know what the protocol is for that who you shut down what you shut down who who had contact with who next thing you know you have you knocked out half of one team it's so. kind of bound to happen, and we're going to see it happen in one of the libraries. Yeah. And get it sick. Could. Or even if someone in your family is sick, right? Then yeah. you yeah. could have it in. It's going to cascade pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, I, I will say that um, Realm, which everybody should be paying attention to, which I still don't know what it stands for, um, <laughs> you know, they're doing that work and they're studying all that material. They're actually going to have a schedule out the next, hopefully, few days 
which will actually lay out when they think they're going to be able to have some answers for this. Um, you know, and, and the, the studies are all over the place. We're doing 72. There's that one institute that's saying seven days. And I know there are some library systems in New York that are saying seven days. I'm sorry, if this lasts on surfaces for seven days, um, we're, in, we're in trouble. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm really um, excited. I'm really excited that Realm's doing this work. And I think it's going to also inform us when it comes to the flu. Um, because, you know, anybody who runs a public library will tell you you lose staff in January and February or whatever the, the switch is for New Zealand and Australia. Um, when, when flu season comes, you, you, you see a dramatic amount of call-ins. So my hope is that not only do we learn about this virus, but maybe start thinking about some other th some, what we do with some of our other material when it comes to influ influenza. But I'm, I'm hoping in, in the next few months we're going to have some answers about uh, this virus and trans, you know, how it transmits on, on the material seems, or circulating. Yeah, that seems to be really moving very quickly. Uh, that uh, any studies about that? I mean, what we like, what we know from week to week, just like very rapidly changes. That's very true. And Rob, I remember you had sent out a tweet not too long ago talking about the rates of infection because of the the PPE that you're wearing down there, how it's knocking down the rates of infection for just general flu. Yeah, the general flu here is like 25,000 cases but in, I can't remember the numbers, but 25,000 and now it's like 10,000 or something. Like it's, it was quite dramatic, the number of cases of common flu that have been wiped out. People are hand washing, people are, you know, social distancing, people are masking up and all those sorts of things. It's not the common um, influenza stuff out, out of the park. Like, it's just not a real threat. One of them was, for April, I think it was usually like 15,000 cases and there was like 2,500. It was something that, that kind of level of, of, of wipeout, you know, as to normal cases of flu versus what's currently happening. Because just people aren't getting out, people aren't in mixing, people aren't in the same area. Um, People are social distancing, people are washing hands, all that stuff. It's, it's just knocking the, the flu cases to smithereens. People are also staying home from work when they're sick instead of pushing through yeah. and turning up to work and sneezing and coughing all over everybody. That's been a big – we're very much a society over here that, you know um, – Soldier on. <laughs> yeah, you soldier on and you push through and you still go to work when you're sick and that but that seems to seems to have been a bit of a shift in that whole mentality of oh I actually I'm sneezing a little bit so I actually should stay at home. Maybe it's become a little bit more accept acceptable to use your sick leave rather than sit on it and hold on to it and use it for some random thing when you're not actually sick. In New York people bank their their sick time for yes, retirement. That is true. Mm -hmm. And that's the uh, conversation we've actually been having uh, with our staff because this they're upset about that and they don't want to have to use their their sick time but it's like guess what you have to actually use it for and i do the same thing i never call in sick i grew up on a farm there's no such thing as not showing up to work sick or, or you know so and i've been banking it for years towards retirement um and now we're, we're that's going to make a it's a major change for people to go oh sick time is for not going to work sick and getting my coworkers sick not to retire three months earlier yeah. Right. And that's where, you know, the thing we owe the public and the staff, our first priority is safety. And, you know, the idea that 
you know, people are going to be inconvenienced during a pandemic that, you know, just in the U.S. killed 115,000 people. I'm sorry, you're going to be inconvenienced. Um, so, you know, I, I think that if that's your horror story is that you had to use sick time that you were, you were hoping on using, you know, saving, you're not going to get a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, the, the situation is so varied throughout the country. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's a different situation. And there's such a shift in how we're perceiving what a good worker is now. You know, it used mm-hmm. to be you showed up if you were sick, you made it through the day, downed a few Advil. Now you're not being a good worker or a good co-worker. And you're being a public, you know, health nuisance if you show up sick. Well, that, and that's the interesting part. You know, we always talk about, like, what does the future look like? How many of these societal shifts are here to stay? And, you know, it'll be interesting. Like, can you ever look at a bowling ball the same way? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about again. you all, but I've always kind of looked at a bowling ball like. <laughs> I always look at the shoes that way. But <laughs> it's just it's just big, heavy orb of germs and you stick your fingers in it yeah i know i mean honestly we've all become like that character monk on tv i don't know if you have it yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah he said you'll thank me later (laughs) (laughs) we've transitioned back pretty fast to um life as normal for a lot of people I know for, you know, it hasn't, I think because we've had such a small number of, of deaths and, and true um, serious illness from it that um, we, and we had a lot of mixed messaging from the government about what we should and shouldn't be doing. So I think that, you know, made it confusing for people and didn't really convince people enough of the urgency and the seriousness of COVID. Um, so we've seen, you know, our shopping centres are full again and, no one is social people are not social distancing and so if you are still doing those things like my family is you sort of feel like you're the outliers in this situation now yeah Um, but we'll just keep on doing it for as long as we all feel like we need to do it for regardless of what you know what the general population is doing it's definitely shifting back on long island oh my gosh it really is yeah a horror show it's yeah. like this, it, yeah, like the sun yeah. is out and people are like, oh, well, I don't show. need a mask. The sun is out. Yeah, right. I mean, we do I deliveries. Teenagers, send- they are either quintuplets. Wearing- <laughs> <laughs> Not I think the other thing we also have to think about is staffing. We can't run our libraries on skeleton crews anymore. That's right. Um, you know, th- I've been saying that to my board is just that, you know, we- we struggled before this. To, you know, we have seven branches in a city of a hundred thousand. I mean, it's 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 not easy. Um, and you know, sometimes running branches on three people. And now it's you know we're begging people to come in. We won't be begging people to come in if they don't feel well. And mm-hmm. so we have to really make sure that we're staffing our organizations in a way that people feel comfortable calling in, and we can operate. Um, if people can't come in. Right, because if you're not feeling well and all of a sudden you think, gee, I'd really just love to stay home, but you're short-staffed yeah. or somebody is already out, you're just going to plow through and go and sit at the reference desk or wherever you're going to be and you're going to be helping patrons. And now it's just you're breathing on people and getting everybody else sick all around you. So it it, it sort of is this vicious cycle. Well, there's also that thing now that New York State requires to, there's that checklist when you come in every morning 
to yes. say, you yep. know, do you have any of these symptoms? It's kind of like for, for keeping it local for New York people. It's like when Fox 5 used to say it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Um, it's it's 9 a.m. Do you have any of these symptoms? And, yep. you know, even if it's not COVID, if you don't feel well, maybe it it's, just stay it's, home. This is like a government imposed cultural change with regard to whether or not you feel crappy that day and it could be this time of year it's more of a uh an allergy thing but if you're if you have a runny nose and a cough maybe you should stay home today and and like scott was saying and nick was kind of confirming yeah we're all kind of taking that sick time to bank it for when we retire but in the same breath uh every library is different but we run um calendar year for our uh, vacation resets, for you know how much time you use, we have so much vacation built up and so much personal and all that, all those other perk days off that we get, the floating holidays and all that stuff. So, um, you know, we can use that and not have to worry about the sick bank time because you can't take a lot of that vacation time with you. You can only, at least for us, we can only carry six days. So, you know, use that. There's no crime in using your vacation day because you don't feel well. But there's a yeah. mindset here that you have to kind of change with regard to, you know, well, but I'm sick. I'm not going to use a vacation day for that. Well, you know what? You're going to lose these days anyway. De-incentivized de using sick days for sick once they became available for something more lucrative. Right. You know, and I don't know that many employees would want to change that. It's a great system. In a lot of ways, you can use it some places towards uh, your health insurance or other benefits but the one thing it doesn't encourage is people to stay home sick right so and, and even you know when we're looking at staffing too one of those organizational challenges is like we're still determining what is the body of work you know if we're doing a shift away from physical programming and we're doing more of this you know curbside and grab and go and it's material focused you know that changes the types of staff you need or at least how they're operating um never mind you know the density we're trying to maintain and then you know the the new thing too is is that we're all anticipating you know how how many arguments are we going to have over you know wearing a mask not wearing a mask do we need to now invest in security um those types of things and you know and now you're doing more routine cleaning it's not even routine i would say it's obsessive cleaning this weighs heavily on different staff, and it means some staff working out of title. It means staff, you know, uh, taking on more work or uh, doing, you know, uh, work that they're not used to. And I feel like the the shift has been by the time we get used to a thing, it, it changes, right? We it's like uh, you're finally getting comfortable, and then somebody shouts, "It's a new phase," <laughs> and uh, you, you need to be able to make that organizational shift on the fly. Well, you know, in terms of that um, and kind of shifting gears for a sec, um, if we have enough people in the building, do, or how do we know when we don't have enough people in the building, you know? Um, so, yes, we're trying to encourage people to take their vacation time, take their sick time when they're not feeling well and all that other stuff because we don't want to have that log jam at the end of that, that time of year. Um, but talking about, you know bringing people into the building, whether it's staff or whether it's even the patrons. I know that we have these different phases that we're talking about. And Justin is the most advanced out of all of us 
Um, you know, we were so involved in making sure we had PPE for when the employees came back in the building and figuring out cleaning protocols and breaking that mindset and culture of, well, that's a custodial job, that's a clerk job, that's a page job. Right now, it's it's all hands on deck, so we all have to do everything. And, you know, forgive the language, but damn civil service for now, we have a job to do and we need to we need to crank this machine back up and get it back up and running. So, you know, and don't even think about just all the protocols we had to put in place in order to re-implement how we're going to get things back going and making it successful. So now we've done all that. So now what? I know, again, we have to talk about phases and things, but when we start to let the public back in the building, what does that look like? So are we talking about kind of like Home Depot or Lowe's, the home improvement stores where they had people with walkie-talkies at either end counting people and how many people can come in and now do you have to have is it appropriate to have staff members there saying sorry you can't come in yet or do you need security um you know what what's the rate what's the magic number and again it probably has to do with square footage of the building and i don't think new york state put out a, an actual an absolute metric on that but you know what's the rate how long can they stay in the building what can they touch and what can't they touch do you have somebody you know, kind of like Igor following behind each person with a wipe and wiping down everything after they touch something. So it just is going to change the very essential character of libraries. You know, somebody told me, two people told me so far that their swimming pools opened up and they have to reserve a lane and a time slot. Can you imagine reserving a time slot and a table at the library and like, oh, let's go to the library next week. Okay. Can you get I bet a they don't even let you pee in the pool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> How dare they? It's as long as it stays in your lane, it's okay. <laughs> the pro- the problem I had with the square footage issue is that, um, uh, like work work health and safety came and did a review of the space to check, you know, who we could have, like how many people we could have in the maker space, and we're doing it by appointment only, and they don't factor in any of the furniture in the room, <laughs> so they just go give. They it was a blanket. This is the square footage. You can have 10 people in here. And I'm like, we can't even have 10 people in here on a normal day, day. let alone now, you know. So I've sort of had to work backwards from that because they haven't factored in the furniture on either sides of the room and the tables down the middle of the room and how people move around the space and all those sorts of things. So it's a bit, you know, um, you know, we have like a set number of people that we're allowed to have in the library at, you know, like 150 or whatever it is. But, you know, I don't know how what we're going to do when it we suddenly get, 155 like are we gonna ask five students to leave like how do what does that look like you know i don't know what's like you know justin i'm sorry i just you know we had we had kind of debated about um you know how how much we can do this crowd control and you know i i think the suspicion is it, it really you may not have to do it based on the types of services right if we're talking like there's no programming and the computers you're only allowed on for 30 minutes and it's closed stacks that's not really an environment that that's going to have people linger for long periods of time um so that that problem may solve itself um in truth i, I yeah. know yeah um oh sorry go ahead Oh, no, go ahead. You first. Uh, oh, I w- thank you. I was going to say, I know we're, you know, we're going to be um, sort of releasing different, I guess, types of access in phases. So when we do first open our doors to the public, there won't be 
furniture for them to linger at or sit at. That's going to be out of the way for a while. And it's just, you know, slowly, depending on how things go and, you know, which phase we go to, you know, like maybe people can use the computer for, as you were saying, a short amount of time at a distance, but it would, it would be more for a task and not for congregating. Um, and then the, the end of the phases is phase five, which is everything back to normal. But the reason why there's four phases is um, because we don't know when phase five is going to happen. So uh, at first, you know, our library, which has lots of comfy furniture, the furniture is not going to be there because we're trying to work with this model to kind of move people along. What kind of, um, how are we going to manage how many people are in a building? I mean, are we going to have a bouncer outside? Are we going to count, use the gate count like, to chime every time it hits 50? You just play Nickelback every 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, library signage, like, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Picture the signage. As a courtesy to your fellow patrons, please get out. I mean, honestly, Sally, we're talking about having security do that. And we use a uh, pretty sophisticated technology solution for like doing patron counting and it actually can record the amount of people that are in a building to an app so wow. we could put that on a security guard smartphone and be like look we got to keep it around this sort of level and that's because of state law or whatever is going on and we'll have to very tightly control that and what about with children honestly children are not going to stop you know touching and Smelling. All over the place. They're going to be all over that around. children's room. Yeah. It, well, we're not. Um, our our playroom, our play and learn center, as we call it, will not obviously will not be open until right. the same safe to do safe, so because right. same that that room is meant to be touched. Right. <laughs> Everything in that room is meant to be touched, and right now that's not particularly. Sure, please touch society until yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, I have to yeah. laugh. I heard, so Jessica, what you were talking about with the seating, I have to laugh because I heard a story that one library started to slowly reopen and they got rid of seating to sort of prevent people from congregating. So the patrons started bringing their own camp chairs. I heard that story too. Beach chairs. Started, I heard the yeah. same thing. Yeah. For reals? Yeah. For reals. Awesome. Yep. Beach chairs for so, coming in. So that's going to be a fun argument to have with people. In New South Wales, we've just got a sign up outside the thing saying the capacity at the moment is 30 or 50 or whatever the number is, and people generally just comply. Yeah. So they just go, okay, 30 is it, that's it. Is yeah, that just, the same in New Zealand? Yeah, Justin, tell us what you've been doing. Yeah, um, I mean, the government was saying uh, social distancing here is two metres, so keep two metres apart. We went and looked at all of our buildings and said, kind of did some very average math to kind of get numbers for each of the buildings. And then said, all right, this is what our buildings can hold. We did have a bouncer uh, basically at the front of our doors, which was a library staff member because we were required to do contact tracing, which meant oh. everybody, your name, your phone number, and we're going to put it in a spreadsheet and save that until... Uh, you know, I think it was like two months we had to save it for. And then we just kind of had staff out on the floor, kind of keeping tabs on how many people we had and making sure we never went over that. Um, luckily, we didn't uh, because we were also telling people, yeah, keep the 30 minutes. But Kiwis, um, like, like Rob was saying, Kiwis and Australians, I, I don't know, you kind of just... You say something to the Kiwis, you're like, our max is 50, keep the 30 minutes. And they're like, oh, that's great. That they do it, 
Um, so I don't know if that's like a, just a difference here in culture. Could be. Could very well be that. You know, we're probably, we're, we're going to do the same as Jessica, which is slowly, our hope is by slowly allowing more and more services, people won't be so shocked by it. But, you know, we already have the experience. We had some issues with being close to a middle school and having like 50 to 60 kids show up at 315 every day. We have a little bit of experience with that bouncer model of having somebody at the door and just saying, we've had too many. You have to wait and come back later. So that that's what we think we're going to get to. But our hope is that maybe we um, get people used to the fact that it's a little bit more restricted right now. So it's not such a shock to them, you know, by slowly doing curbside and then go, okay, you can come in the building, but just to pick up material, okay, you can come in the building and ask research questions and grab a computer for an hour. Okay. Now you can come in the building and do more library what you're used to from the library our hope is to kind of ease and make it gradual for everybody and in some ways we're kind of not looking forward to it because we want our library back but also we've had so many behavior issues that it's kind of like we feel like maybe we're going to be able to kind of start fresh from where we were um and and that's a little bit of a hope and i am being way more pollyanna than i've ever been in my entire life lately but, you know, our hope is to kind of just reestablish some of the things we've struggled with over the last few years and talking to other library directors that are, you know, have libraries that serve in similar locations. They've had the same issues. So, you know, our hope is maybe this is a little bit of a reset and reminding people that this is an institution that, you know, we're here to serve you, but you, you can't bring a lawn chair in and camp out. So as, as uh, Scott was talking, Mike, it really made me think about Brentwood and, you know, how the community is there, how that is such a, a, a community center. And it's right down the street from one of the schools. And, the, you know, it's like a, a place that the, for the kids to go after school. Um, how do you think you're going to handle that over at Brentwood? Honestly, I think we have a similar view of of we had issues in the past. But we, so we hired security and our security guards are amazing. And it's kind of resets the relationship when, from the get-go, they get to set the dictate the terms of people coming in. Um, it's different. It's a different kind of approach than we've had in the past, where you're kind of trying to like fix the problem after it happens. You know, now administration gets to say this is the rules for coming in in the first place. Um, I mean, we're very safety-minded in general, so. The entire approach that we've taken has been a little bit slower, but a little bit more um, uh, deliberate according to uh, Tom, the director's uh, mindset. And uh, we are trying to minimize contact as much as possible. And we plan on having the librarians kind of work from home doing holes and and reference. So just in case there is a God forbid an infection amongst the team that's present, the librarians could actually step in and then take over the curbside. Um, so between the fact that we have security already, we kind of already have these rules in place and we're, and we, and we're kind of hopeful that people, as they come back, will, will recognize the authority of the security guards from, from, from day one. And, you know, they'll follow those rules, um, between that and our internal staffing assignments. I think that we're really in a good place to, um, build up services slowly and deliberately and also safely. You know, and I'm thinking as we're having this discussion, Carol Ann, you are um, pretty much 
the queen of book discussions when it comes to uh, to Nassau County and probably Suffolk County too, with the amount of people that you draw, because you draw a, a huge amount of people. And I know that you've kind of made that correction to an online environment, especially with your Friday afternoon half 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 hour happy hour with your grape juice and juice boxes. Um, or was it Doctor? Say that in quotes, please. Make sure you use the air quotes. Yes, the air quotes, of course. Um, <laughs> So when the doors open up at Merrick, when the doors swing open and you're ready to start doing, and this is true for programming in general, what the new normal is going to be like, what do you envision it being? So now it's the new normal, um, and Justin, we'll we'll talk to you because you're living in the new normal right now, um, but with regard to if the infection rates don't go up and... You know, and we are able to return to whatever normal is. I'm holding up air quotes for normal. I don't know how we can predict that, right? I mean, I I feel like I can sort of guess until the cows come home or the sheep, uh, but I have no way of knowing what that's going to look like. So I know that since I've implemented the 7 p.m. book discussion, one of the things we started doing right off the bat is we started, we implemented Google Voice. So patrons could contact us, text us, access us in many different ways. Every librarian took a shift and we were able to get in touch with the patrons, place holds, order books for them. And then we implemented a delivery service. So we had um, CERC staff and pages going out and making delivery, door-to-door delivery services. And they would request, people would request, leave it out my front stoop or leave it on the porch or wherever it was. So it's been working really well. But now that it's it's become so overwhelming, we're going to start doing curbside service because the patrons are so happy to be back using the services. Everything is working. It's running relatively smoothly. So what it will look like when we go back, I don't. I don't know, but I will keep the 7 p.m. book discussions because when I was able to make that change, that course correction, people who work can now attend the book discussion before it was in the middle of the day. So now I'm getting even more people than I had before. So I get anywhere from 30 to 60 people on a Zoom book discussion. And James would be very proud of me, James Hutter. You should see us trying to deal with all the comments in the chats. I learned from the best, uh, but so <laughs> I, broke, you need a few moderators sometimes with some of these. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I have I have moderator because or a co-host on Zoom as they call it. We call them we call them gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at, although sometimes uh, to be really fancy, I call them my executive producers because <laughs> 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 it makes it a whole different kind of experience, right? My executive producer is going to be it's, and then it sort of changes. It's not a book discussion. It's a different environment you know and and my slides go up and i have interactive things going on so um i I don't know and plus a lot of the people who go to the book discussions are of a certain age and these are the the most um affected population right they're the people that who at most risk so i worry about them and i almost don't want them to come in if i can I mean, we had an 89-year-old working on Zoom the first time, and it was a lot of, can you see me? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, but go figure, they figured it out. So, or a son came over, or the grandson came over and hooked them up to the Zoom, which was great. So, I almost don't want them to come in so soon, so quickly, because I just feel like even when we get over this hump, everybody's still at risk. So, I worry about that. 
So let's let's talk to the man who's living in the future right now, Justin. Um, give us be our soothsayer and tell us what it's like at this point over there. Wow. Um, Not to put you on the spot or anything. Oh, no, um, I'm living it. So might as well chat about it. It was um, it, it happened very quickly that, uh, you know, one week we were really social distancing, going heavy on the sand, hand sanitizer, not doing any programs. And then the minute that Jacinda Ardern announced that we were moving to level one, which is basically level one here is use hand sanitizer, practice common sense. Don't mess this up. Um once that happened, it was just like immediate that like this country kind of went back to normal life uh, where you see people in malls and cafes and uh, people are out and about. So, yeah, I mean, things kind of just really went back to normal pretty quickly. Um, we're still trying to, in the library, kind of ease into things. We've always taken that slow and steady wins the race approach where, you know, this week we're going to do three programs, next week we'll do five and so on and so forth. Um, as far as the online things go, um, a lot of the, the a big thing for us was story times. Um, our national library organization, Lianza, L-I-A-N-Z or Z, depending where you're at, A, um, they negotiated an agreement with publishers so we could do online story times. And that runs out, I believe, on June 30th. So um, some of us are still doing online story times. Some are just have just jumped right back into doing them in person. Um, we Here in Wellington, we did a teen writers group online during the lockdown, and that was pretty cool. We actually got a letter from Jacinda about it saying, good job. Um, that was neat. Um, but we're continuing on with that because it was just such a neat little community of people across the country and it's not that much staff time. So I, I don't know if I'm being much of a soothsayer or uh, a guy from the future, but it was, it was interesting to me how just kind of almost normal it felt like after we got back to level one, um, people just kind of said, okay, we're going to go out and live life like we did. And then we'll go from there. And that really, yeah, here, that, that's fascinating. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, yeah here in Australia, um, I talked to uh, um, the local um, library manager on Saturday, and she was saying that what, what we're learning from this is, you know, the engagement skills of being online and keeping some of that going, even when we get back to programming, which is not on the cards yet until maybe October, November. Um, and she said, once that happens, we will, some element of online engagement will stay um, as we do programs and as we do things because we want to engage with people who have been unable to engage with our programming because they're at work or because mum's sick or because of work arrangements or whatever. Um, so things like story time, which like Leanza earlier here, negotiated with the publishers to enable us to do online story times and being able to do that. And they, and they have seen an, a tremendous upsurge in people buying books and things like that because kids want to read and read and read and read and read the same story. But that idea of uh, being able to do that, so no one's sure at the moment, but there are uh, negotiations ongoing to at least for kids' books still be able to do online story time going forward in some form 
as a part of a package that enables you to do story time in the library, but also online, uh, so it's available afterwards uh, for that kind of thing. And for every uh, program that's going to be organised, they hope to have some aspect of that available as an online participation uh, tool afterwards. Well, Justin, did you say you were having programming that you have started programming again, or is it have you started doing that? Yeah, we started uh, in-person programming on Monday. Uh, we ah, had wow. baby rock and rhymes here, uh, you know, singing, dancing, clapping, all that fun stuff. Um, pretty well attended too, not like we usually saw uh, before all the COVID stuff, but. Um, yeah, here, it, it just, I, I think people were ready, uh, knowing that we had zero cases at that point on Monday in the country. People were just, like, really itching to come back out into the public. And, you know, the advice from the government was, you know, we have zero active cases in this country, so let's try to get back to as normal as possible. I mean, whether that will change now, that we now have two active cases uh, in New Zealand, we'll see. Well, I also. Uh, did any, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Caroline. Uh, no, I was to say, did anybody? Everybody, I'm sure, who came to the program was very excited to be there and see everybody. And yeah, it's it's um the people that are coming back. It feels like a celebration, almost like a it's that party that we all kind of want to have when this is all over. You right. know, I, I'm picturing like the end of the Star Wars movies um, where everybody's cheering in the different planets and stuff. It feels <laughs> like that on a micro level. Um, yeah, people are just excited to come back to that and kind of they feel confident in coming back because we have such little uh, so little cases of it here. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I dream of that day. <laughs> I dream yeah. of that day. I, I, I'm just I know. hoping we don't. I'm just hoping we don't go back to it, you know, um, that we have a lot more to learn. I've, yeah. yeah. I, I know um, for, you know, for us, like we uh, at Syosset, we had become accustomed the last few years to having just these really large scale programs where thousands of people would pass through the door and it's going to take a while to get yep. back to that. But we've found, um, you know, and I'm not saying it's not going to happen again. I do believe there will be a time it will. Just we can't plan for it in the next within the next year for sure. Um, but one of the things that we found about online programming is that it kind of gives us freedom to do things we probably wouldn't have considered. Uh, yes. This whole summer, you know, I know Carolyn, you have your 7 p.m. book talks with you know may or may not be grape juice. We're not judging. That's we're, the happy half hour. <laughs> we're having um, throughout the summer, and we found a lot of authors whose book tours have been canceled are very happy to do Zoom book talks with us. Um, so we've been uh, having Zoom virtual lunches with authors, which means you could literally get an author from anywhere. Uh, the mm -hmm. one that we had last week was Esther Saffron Foer, and she was, you know, zooming in from Washington D.C. That's not something we would have been able to do before, and we had people come to that. We're also having virtual BYOBs throughout the summer. Uh, again, not judging whatever beverage you bring, you know, who knows? 
it's it's in webinar mode. We're not going to judge. Um, <laughs> but th that's, you know, again, like we wouldn't have thought to do that. We're getting a lot of interest. And one of the most exciting things that I never would have thought to do is uh, like we're, we're just reaching out to so many people that we wouldn't have thought to. So, you know, that's pretty much what I'm getting at. There's things that I think are going to stick around past the pandemic that are just going to make libraries better and maybe by doing things we wouldn't have considered to do before this. I mean, I did a Facebook live with Jean Kwok and she was, she came in from the Netherlands and we got 1700 views and it was yeah. just shocking to me that everybody showed up and, and then some, and it was such a fun, we kept her for an hour. She didn't want to leave. And it was not something I, that would have been on my radar as something that would be viable, that people would rather be there in person. So I remember being really nervous and trepidatious about doing it to begin with. But as soon as she said yes to the dress, and then I thought, and I was texting Jessica, no, I don't know about this is going to work. I'm really nervous. And she said, don't worry, awesome. it'll be fine. And it was really, really fine. And um, so we just keep scheduling them now. And it's and everyone can watch from home. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just been great. I think one of the oh sorry go ahead no you go Jessica you're right I was going to say I think one of the craziest things was you know like one of the programming lines that I work with at Syosset is called trending and we are sort of um, you know we target like younger Gen X millennial older Gen Y and obviously anybody else who's interested can come as well but you know just the themes of the programs are kind of tailored towards that group which is sort of difficult to get to the library well you know I, one of the things i used to do when i worked in children's was i did um, a scary stories virtual campfire at the end of the the summer with the kids not virtual but you know like we were in a room but there was no fire and i tell scary stories so i was talking to uh, my coworker stacy mencher who um does these programs with me and I'm like, wouldn't it be great if we could talk about, are you afraid of the dark, you know, with people, which was a like Twilight Zone for kids when we were kids. And I reached out to the author, uh, DJ McHale, who was one of the showrunners for that. And I'm like, hey, you wouldn't happen to want to do a virtual visit. And he came back and he's like, yeah. You know, so from California, the end of the summer, we're going to have this program, which would have never come across our radar had we not been allowed to do in-person programming. So it's wild. It's almost removed a barrier from us from saying this is not, people won't come to this, it won't appeal, we won't get that famous person. And now that, you know, the other is not an option, because I'm tight, Jessica, uh, <laughs> it was, um, it, it almost feels freeing. You know, and as Carolina said, you know, at, our attendance numbers are very high for programs that, um, you know, are in some ways more creative, more open than we could have offered with all the obstacles of just doing them in person. I mean, yeah. another thing, come winter, we don't have to worry about the weather, right? Right. Right. And are all of these online, like, say, Carol Ann, is like, are your author visits, are they accessible? Like, is the recording shared somewhere so that mm -hmm. there can be, you know, so are you still getting hits on that yes. content once it's 
like, you know, when it's not live and it's moved to sort of like a state. And I'm so surprised when it happens. I'm so surprised. I'm thinking, who the heck? But and then what happens is the author will then in turn share the recording as well. So now you're picking up new people and then sort of the eyes go to the Merrick Library. But I don't really care about that so much as that they go to a library that this is programming. Oh, maybe my library does something like that. So it's that just the word brings people to the location. So that's more, you know, it's nice yeah. that they know that they can get it from a library. And that becomes nice. an organic thing too. So it, yeah, and, and it a does. lot of what happens in libraries is organic. So a lot, even, even something like podcasting has been an organic spread in both Nassau and Suffolk County um, with regard to libraries. And, you know, it, the one thing that we all do really well is we share with each other. Unlike any other industry on this planet, libraries will always share, collaborate. I know I've spoken to both Sally's, you know, Long Island Sally and and New South Wales Sally um, about so many different things. I know you do, Sally. I'll take that. I'll take a Long Island Sally to go, please. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, with everybody. It's it's an Australian Sally. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. So with everybody in the room, with the exception of Nick, because I never share anything with Nick. Um, you know, I've, you know, we, we've all shared different things. Nick just takes. Um, so it's just one of those things where, you know, we do this really well and it's, and I'm sure Scott up in, up in, you know, in capital region, you guys share with North country and Southern tier and all that stuff. So, you know, it's something that we're really good at doing. You know, I would say actually, um, library staff, frontline library staff are fantastic at sharing. Library administrators, um, not necessarily, um, and I think this is this is actually I would say strengthened the relationship we have with our system because we've worked so well with them on the plan. Because you know, with the library system, you got you have to get everybody on the same page. You know, the smaller Helltown Library with the big city Albany Library, everybody needs to be on the same page. This is the most amount of communication and working together that I've seen library administrators have in a really long time, which is a positive. Um, you know, we, we need each other and um, I really like seeing what's going on. And I'm talking with directors a lot more often now and really being kind of, I hate to use this term, but I'm gonna use it. We're a little bit more vulnerable with each other right now um, and a little bit more socially supportive of each other, um, which is something that I really enjoyed when I was a librarian and when I got into administration, um, which I'm still regretting 10 years later, um, you know, that it, it, all of a sudden it was like it went from a super supportive environment to a little bit more competitive and a little bit more, you know, just it wasn't as friendly. And so it's nice to kind of see everybody working together at that level. And it feels I definitely it feels a little less lonely um, than, than in, in other things that I've dealt with in the past. And that I've really liked to see. And the other thing I'll talk about is Zoom meetings. We all hate them, but our participation at a staff level, I think our communication as an organization has improved tremendously because nobody has an excuse. Everybody's at the all staff meeting. And if they're not at the all staff meeting, they're watching the video. Chad is so much better to wait for that parking lot at the end and have, you know, go through everybody's questions as opposed to people raising their hands and trying to have, you know, they want to get, you know, want to get you in that gotcha moment. Um, You know, I definitely think internally communications improved with Zoom and we use Google Meet, you know, in this weird cyber world that we're living. And, um, you know, again, I don't want to see that go away, but 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the field has been excellent when it comes to librarians and power professional staff are great at sharing with each other. I think once it gets into management and administration, that doesn't happen as much. I do think that in, in the face of this great unknown, that's changed tremendously. And I really appreciate it. It's much less lonely at the top right now than it had been in the past. I, I, I like, think part of that, too. I'm sorry, Sally. Um, you go, Nick, first. Sure. <laughs> no, I just think a part of that too, Scott, is at this point, organizationally, individually, we're all like, we're basically at the mercy of whoever the least informed person is. And that's at, like, that's both at an individual level, the person that doesn't know what's going on and is operating in ignorance or organizationally or you know our interconnected library systems you know everybody has to be meeting certain standards because when we're sharing resources you're putting everybody else at risk so i i think in part two even where there's competition i think folks are uh, this is like the intersection of kind of uh self-interest and and information sharing (laughs) and that may be part of the driver there because you know if some library is a bunch of yahoos that are going about things really badly that kind of puts everybody else in danger too um and it's definitely opened the gates for for information sharing i think yeah i was just going to uh say sorry chris um i think that in 10 years we're going to look back and say can you believe before 2020 we didn't do xyz and, you know, we don't know which shifts are going to take and which are just going to be a flash in the pan. But, you know, and maybe somebody like Justin or Scott will look back and say, can you believe there was no collaboration amongst directors back then? Or um, Carolyn will say, can you believe that we only did author visits in person? We just don't know what it is that's going to be, but it's, it's going to be so major because it was such a huge catalyst that forced us to make a nationwide and global-wide change all at once to our services and our products and uh, to how we manage our teams. And it was amazing. Even when I... Go ahead, ahead, Caroline. No, I was going to say, even with um, something as simple as doing a Facebook Live with an author or or some kind of thing program, I would text Jessica and say, listen, you know, how do, do you know how to do this? What is your suggestion? Or I reach out to Chris or I reach out to James Hutter or whatever it is. You know, I want to make this more effective. It's not just for me. It's for all of us. So if I'm learning something from all of them and then Jessica gets back to me and we so we're just having this nice free exchange of of information and it makes us all look good. I agree. And I have to say, in general, I mean, you know, Chris, when you were talking before about how well everybody on the library level, uh, you know, communicates, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to get um, our podcast, uh, the library podcast, turn the page up and running without, you know, your guidance. And it's really just a testament to, I think, what libraries stand for, that if somebody, you know, I think in other fields, if you have something that's working really, really well, you don't want to share it. You're like, no, I'm not going to tell you about it. But, you know, we're like, yeah, you know, we're going to share it. We're going to try to help you be the best that you can be because we recognize that we all have something different to bring to the table. It's not so much about competition. It's about, you know, it's all a little uh, different um a different flavor and just you know because there's so many library podcasts out there now doesn't mean that one 
you know, is better than the other. It's just that we're bringing our own spin, you know, with our buildings and expertise to it. So um, I'm always happy when Carol Ann was texting me about that stuff. Um, you know, well, and because uh, there's room for yeah. there's room for all of us. We're all so doing much. this at the same time. And because yeah. I do top shelf at Merrick Library and my spin is different than you what you guys are doing. Exactly. It's, there's room for all of it. And if we didn't have Chris sort of showing us this is really good, easy enough. You guys can do this. You know, I know I don't consider myself a techie librarian by any stretch. Same. In fact, <laughs> when I say that at home, my parents, my kids just like, ha ha ha, mom, that's not true. Um, but now I feel somewhat capable, uh, but there is room for all of us on in the podcast land. And if it brings attention to the libraries, then, you know, why not? And there's room for all of us in the Zoom programming land. Right. And this is something that's going to be a new normal that I don't think is going to go away because we are getting more um, technical with regard to our lives. So curbside, I don't envision going away anytime soon. Uh, Zoom meetings and things like that, I don't envision going away anytime soon. And just in terms of like what James Hutter and I do um, with the joint Nassau Suffolk Tech meeting, it used to be I would do the, the, the technology information forum and I would have to reach out near the end of the year and book a whole bunch of different libraries January through June and then September to, to November and say, okay, and you have to provide bagels and you have to provide refreshments and you have to provide this. And then the first half hour is chit chat. Then maybe you get to the meeting by 10, 10, 15, and then you take that break at like 10 45 and then it turns into more chit chat. And then, you know, you're back in it again at maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, and then you're supposed to go till 12 and it ends at like 11.45. So you're doing more chit-chat than you are actually getting information out there. Where now, we can do that tech meeting in an hour, hour and 15. And it's it's clean. We get to the point. There's more engagement because you're here to actually do that. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot to be said for networking. That There's a lot to that. But, you know, with regard to getting to the point of things, Zoom and Google Meet, Google Hangouts, go to meeting, whatever you're pick your poison thing is um, the the information gets through a lot faster than the um, than the chit chat and, and all the other stuff and, and now as much as look I like a bagel like anybody but now this makes it I think a lot easier for us to do what we do still be in the office in case something breaks or something happens and we can but still get that information out there and what's great is we were doing this with the Facebook live when we were going library to library um, we were doing it on Facebook Live, and the interesting thing was the legacy numbers. It wasn't the how many people were watching at the time. So maybe you get 10 people, 5 people, 8 people, whatever. But when you look to see 2, 3, 4 months down the road, and 300 people looked at that meeting, that's 300 people you didn't meet before, where that information now got disseminated further than just the 10 people at that table. So, And I also think in terms of what James and, and I have been doing with the tech meeting, we're getting crazy numbers of people. Like, James, what are we doing? Like, between, I mean, the last one was kind of small at 72, right? I feel like when we're doing in-person meetings, we would get 50 people and we'd be, like, thrilled and, like, <laughs> I don't know, just kind of, like, amazed. And now we're getting well over 100, well over 120 per meeting. Yeah. And I'm just getting Bagels tons of great feedback. That kind of a draw that we thought they were. <laughs> Bagels help in person. <laughs> I need to be honest with you. Before the COVID crisis, I don't think that going to it. I mean, and this doesn't. This is not meant as an offense, but you know, you don't have a lot of time. 
And I don't think going to a tech meeting would have really been something that I would have, you know, done because I don't do a ton of things that I had in the past considered tech. Um, And, you know, I'd have to I'd Mm -hmm. have to make a, you know, I'd have to make a case as to why, since I'm not technically, haha, pun intended, a tech librarian, you know, I want to go to tech. But when I heard that you were doing tech meetings and, you know, I what some of the things you were discussing, I was like, okay, well, we all have to become tech librarians now. Let me go to these meetings and see what's relevant to what we now have to shift to do. And I found that, yeah, there's a lot more to get out of tech meetings than I would have thought of beforehand. So now, I I mean, if I if I'm able to zoom into them, you know, depending on what my schedule is, I'm there. I'm like all about your tech meetings. Yeah, I will never miss one of the James, one of the tech meetings um, unless I I actually said to James, I'm going to miss this week. I'm sorry. (laughs) I have a vacation day. Could you imagine? I have a vacation. (laughs) So so much valuable information that so much valuable information. I, I know I wouldn't have considered in the past. Correct. I'm with Jessica on this. And I think that going forward, I don't, I feel like the virtual way is the way to go going forward. I can't see us doing the in-person meetings. Just the geography of Long Island too made it difficult to always get strong attendance numbers. Um, And then if somebody was out sick, you couldn't go to the meetings. So, mm -hmm. you know, this just lends itself to a different, you know. You could be out sick and go to a meeting. I I, I think it's also. The barrier is so low. Right, right. Yeah. It's a it's a comfort level too. I mean, just being able to be in a meeting and just like be able to get up, walk around your office or walk around your house, just that, you know, not needing to be in a space with other people. I mean, Monday was my first, I, 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 because I was present, I I had to go to a press conference and I I had to find my ironing board and find my iron (laughs) for the first time in three months. And then I'm like, you know, where's this tie? You know, where's, you know, Scott, look at you going all tech with the iron. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it was like, it was my Monday morning was crazy. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm stressed. This is what has stressed me out over my life. And then it's like, get in the car. Then I got to find parking. Do I park at my library and walk down? Do I try to, you know, all these things that you don't think about that are, str- you know, driving a half ton piece of machinery down a street, you know, all yeah. those things you don't have to worry about if it's just like I got to throw up in my laptop with my dog in my lap and be really engaged in a, into a great meeting and not have to worry about, oh, God, I got to is it going to take me 15 or 20 minutes to get back to my office. I'm always way more engaged. So I agree. I hope a lot of what I want to see people in person. I love people. I love my people. I miss my staff. I miss my direct reports without a doubt. Um, but at the same time meetings this has made meetings less stressful and like just yeah i think there's definitely i see ali is doing uh, not alia Ala's um the conference coming up is going to be online i think this is a perfect opportunity to move a lot of pd onto an online space so that more people can attend because it's more affordable you know all those sorts of things it ticks a lot of boxes for you know regional rural library staff that often don't get an opportunity to to do any PD. It does lack the face-to-face networking, but there's other ways of doing it. Right. And and it's kind of, you know, I I just feel like that's where COVID-19 kind of reset the game board. And when it blew everything up, we started from 
everything was needs driven first, mm-hmm. which is always a good place to start. And now you have to ask yourself the question, once you've shown that, you know, you can do this stuff virtually, what is yeah. the compelling reason that you're making for, you know, there are reasons to network in person, but now, you know, you need to sell it as that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of socially responsible reasons for not traveling unnecessarily. Um so I, I think that's kind of what you're seeing now is you blew it all up, you're rebuilding it, and now you're having to ask questions that you didn't ask in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. When you do, you know, reallocate a resource or funding and staff, it's a, do it's you need this? <laughs> I feel like that's the story of libraries, though, like all right. the time, you know, like rebuilding yeah, don't you feel like we went into a time machine and it basically <laughs> it pushed us in a direction we knew we were going but much quicker like we all knew yeah, we were going digital definitely. with our collections and we right. knew that we were you know we said we were it's like what, what chris has said a while back that you now we, we've been pushing this idea that libraries are more than the building but no one listened because everyone could come to the library and right. everyone could do this stuff now we've we've gone to the we were we were forced to go to an online delivery system, and now people understand that oh yeah that's right the libraries are more than the building, and now we're coming back. So tonight I'm on uh, I'm helping out with a uh, online PD talking about how do we now measure, um, and what do we measure in the new matrix? What what's the thing that we're trying to find out so that we can inform the admin people, the, the councils, the the people who control libraries and the budgets, how the, we, we are actually doing. What are we measuring? How are we measuring it? And what are we trying to tell people who are in charge? That these are the things that we're measuring so that they understand that it's not just footfall and people coming into a building it's actually this engagement with the online community, um, delivering resources like story times online. Like it's just massive, and it's and it's going to be like there's 177 people coming tonight to this online thing. It's just going to be it's going to be huge. But um, yeah, it's that thing of hitting the 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 zeitgeist, I guess. Of now that we're moving out of this time of being in lockdown, how do we measure going forward and how do we find inform the people who who give us the money to do what we do? What, what I, yeah, we do? I always think that data and assessment are only in service of storytelling. So yeah. you collect and then you look at it and you say, what is the story? And that's yeah. what you used to tell. And I think people are going to be more appreciative of data because, I mean, one thing that's been brilliant in New York, I I can't really speak for the rest of the country, but one thing that's been brilliant in in New York is the governor show, which everybody tunes into. And it's, you want to see the graphs, you want to see the data. I mean, to have the governor of your state speak like an information scientist about data and telling the story through data, it's like that gets me really excited. I I guess that says a little I've become way too much of a library administrator, but I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's that we have a story to tell. Here's this backbone and we're basing the story off of data for all of us. I mean, the library degree is an information science degree. We should all be excited about this opportunity that finally 
maybe maybe we've reached a point in society where people are going to recognize data is important to telling the story and finding the truth in things. And then, you know, when we throw that those graphs up in front of neighborhood associations and common council members, they get it like, oh, okay, yeah, we need to govern this way. Um, I also think, though, that in a year or two, when things are closer to normal, because historically, you know, pandemics come and then they go away, people are going to be really hungry for that in-person interaction. And I do think that we're going to see, and that doesn't mean stopping all the virtual work. I do think programming in, you know, 21, 22, you're going to see a huge spike in participation because people are going to, are going to be, they're going to enjoy all this virtual, but all of a sudden in-person experience is going to be this like new thing for some people. Yeah. It's going to blow the, you're going to blow their minds and they're going to be really excited about it. So we do, we do need to make sure that we're going to be able to pivot towards that as well and communicate to our boards and our local governments and our municipal, you know, governments, those things aren't going to go away. And we need to be prepared to make that shift again in a few years. Can you imagine that's, a five-year-old saying, you mean you can have story time at the library? Yeah. And <laughs> how cool that's going to be for them. So we have to kind of, you know, we have to, we have to look at data. We have to look at history and kind of balance how we move forward. It's scary, but I think in some ways really, really exciting. Almost as, as exciting as the idea of Long Island bagels, which that's all I'm going to think about. <laughs> you, you, you bring up a good point. I was saying to, to a, a coworker the other day when we were talking about having in-person programming again, you know, like eventually there will be a time for it. I mean, what is it that I, I think the exact words I used were, yeah, okay, so the Spanish flu happened, but so did La La Palooza. Like, yeah. you know... Yes, there have been pandemics in the past, and yes, this one is really, really scary, but that doesn't mean in, you know, like looking down the road in a few years, we're not all going to be back doing a big event and be like, wow, remember that time? You know, I think we're going to have more knowledge, and obviously we're going to have more, um, we're going to have more, um, pathways to reach the public like virtual programming um but i think we're going to get back to doing what we're doing before we'll just be doing it better and with more knowledge and better technology better technology absolutely so we have now gone for an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, so dear. if you're still listening to this podcast, I don't know if you're a dedicated listener, if you felt that everything we said was so incredibly interesting and informative that, you know, you hung on or you just fell asleep in the middle of it and now you're being waken up by us saying signing off. But I want to thank these soothing accents, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, That's yeah. Nice. You know, I just keep so listening soothing. to see if it gets better, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> been a long journey. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody, the great panel: Sally Stiglitz and Nick Tanzi, Caroline Tack, James Hutter, Justin. Uh, Justin, help me. Hanky. 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 And. <laughs> And, of course, Rob Thompson from New South Wales and my buddy Sally Rob. Turbot and Jessica Chowton and Mike Buono and Scott. Oh, come on. Jars at the back. Don't, don't do him Jars any favor, Scott. Jars at the back. <laughs> Jars at the back. Jars at the back. 
So Good job. thanks everybody for joining us. This has been really informative. I think this is going to be the last COVID that we do, unless there's like a massive like zombie apocalypse or something, which we're not going to have. We're all going to go back to normal. We're all going to follow in Justin's footsteps and we're all going to be healthy and happy. And we're going to take what we learned with tech and move it forward with library land. And we are going to keep going. So thank you everybody for coming on and just thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. Thank Thanks, everyone. Thank you. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.